What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, movie fans, back for Anatomy Movie. That's right, 2017, the summer blockbusters have kicked off, and today we dissect Alien Runner. That's right, the sequel to Blade Runner, the prequel to Alien. Just kidding, it's Alien Covenant. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Ridley Scott returns to the sci-fi universe back for his franchise of Alien. Um, I jokingly said it's kind of similar to Blade Runner, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but first, as always, let's introduce the panel with Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans, good to be here. Can't wait to talk. That's right. And Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. A couple of things right off the bat. Uh, we assume that you've seen the movie. We're very spoiler-filled, so if for some reason you have not and you've tuned into us without the knowledge of what we do, uh, pause, go see the movie, then return to us. Secondly, uh, if you like, follow along with our notes in the description box. There's a link to all our notes, and in fact, we have a couple of videos, we have a couple of pictures, so you can get those directly from there as well. And thirdly, uh, you guys also did a watch-along for the original Alien about a week or so ago. Yeah, we did. And uh, you want to talk about that real fast? You know, give it a little Yeah, I know. We did this great watch-along where we uh, talked about Alien. Uh, I'm going to reference, actually, the commentary that's on the disc because I didn't want to, like just verbalize what the commentary on the disc is because if you have the disc and you're watching along you can do that on your own we did it in such a way or i wanted to talk about alien as a film noir science fiction thriller uh and then you know having marissa along uh who's not the biggest horror fan but it was a great sport regardless and i think we had a lot to talk about a lot to intercede and hopefully uh go ahead and watch it and you'll come away Maybe learning something new about a movie that was released in 1979. It was a great time. Yeah, and you had a lot of factoids to drop throughout watching it that I didn't know while watching it. So it it was, you know, it's a nice commentary. It was good, yeah. I I had a great time doing it with Marissa. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I am going to reference commentary today because we're not doing a watch along and how that ties into Alien Covenant. But yeah, I mean, awesome. this is awesome. I'm well, bummed I couldn't join you guys, and uh, I heard Marissa was sick, so she didn't participate as much as she wanted to, <laughs> but enjoy it nonetheless. Great, great stuff there. All right, so let's talk about Alien Covenant. Uh, overall thoughts for the movie. Let's start with you, Marissa. Um, you know, like, visually, it was pretty. I, I enjoyed it. It, um, I felt like a lot of the beats were the same as the having just watched the original Alien and then going into this one immediately afterwards, like I felt the beats were the exact same. So 
uh, not a lot of things were a big surprise when it came to like the deaths or the character developments of certain characters that we should be watching throughout the film, like ones to get attached to and ones not to. Um, I, if it, it felt like a regular Ridley Scott movie, if you've seen the first one, then you've kind of seen them. Mostly, you've definitely seen this one because I felt it was just like too much of the same. It didn't feel original, but I still enjoyed it. Okay. Dimitri, you love Alien Well, I do. And, um, you know, listen, I think with Alien Covenant, Ridley Scott, and he's on record as saying such as well, is that he tries to correct the missteps of Prometheus. And, again, I said Ridley Scott's on record saying, you know, I I, I sort of made a mistake in Prometheus. You know, fans wanted some some Alien in it. And, you know, we could talk about the marketing of Prometheus and how sort of mismarketed to show us a little bit more. So I think in this movie, he really did try to patch things up, so to speak. Um, And he expanded the universe, uh, and he tried to make a better alien experience for the audience. And I think for the most part, he succeeds. I mean, you got to figure, this guy is 81 years old, and he is not showing any signs of slowing down. Usually some director's like they're making shorter films or they're making more personal films. Scott, Alien is personal to him, and he still knows how to craft a scene. He doesn't shy away from the horror aspects of, like, blood and gore and suspense. And add to that, Alien Covenant, like you said, Marissa, it looks gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a movie to be experienced on the largest screen possible. Um his cast, I thought, including Catherine Waterston and Danny McBride, Billy Crudup, they give us people to root for and or feel bad for. Uh, but make no mistake, I think that Alien Covenant is Michael Fassbender's movie, uh, for sure. I think playing dual roles as synthetic David and Walter, and was that the only one to catch that the names of the synthetics are actually the first names of the, since day one of Alien, David Geiler and Walter Hill... Um, so, you know, him playing David and Walter, I thought was amazing. Uh, Fassbender delivers to me a very nominatable performance, not only playing off his castmates, but himself. And he did it really well. Um, you know, we'll talk about the flute scene, which is, you Dear know, Lord. which I, I thought it was one of the most, I thought it was amazing. It was my favorite. Except for that one line. Scene. I mean, the, which, every, the entire the fingering. Theater, yes. T- the entire theater laughed. I and mean, who, who didn't theory. catch that? Yes. Well, it, and I think to a point that was meant to be there. There was supposed to be some of that type of eroticism while building suspense, but we'll go into it later. Um, Alien Covenant, for me at least, uh, it did the right things to right the ship and gets back on course. It closely resembles Alien, and it even ties into Aliens, uh, and even a peppering of Blade Runner. We'll talk about that. And Mr. Scott, you listen regarding what led to the disappointments in Prometheus, so please hear me now. Please, let's not stretch this out. LV426 need be explained. I'm waiting for this. And so I'm sure everybody else is. We thought we were going to get that in Prometheus, and we didn't. So I'm not sure audiences want to wait for two or three more movies to get there. So let's let's get there. Let's figure out how that engineer ship got there in the mm-hmm. first place that the Nostromo was, was, was diverted to. So let's not wait three movies. Yeah, well... Okay, so here's here's my thoughts, and uh, I thought overall, 
good crack at the movie by your own you know words i think it corks corrected a lot of things but i think in general um you know the question of where things come from in this or or, or how like these aliens came to be is such a bad question to have to answer in a movie that i i you know to your point like let, let's get to something else um, and I, I think if if it didn't have to adhere to the mythology that it has to course correct Prometheus and then head into Alien and all that stuff, I think it could have been a much better movie. Um, I, I think too oftentimes it was stuck. Okay, we have to adhere to this mythology while correcting this. And again, you know whether or not it full, fully does that, uh, we can discuss. But certainly, I think it um, it, it perhaps hindered its creative like as a standalone movie what it could have been because of it had to fit into this puzzle well there were a lot of questions um some uh i've dwelled upon and and might have some insights to and some answers others not i mean this is not a perfect film in my demetrio meter film i would say this is real good but i wouldn't say it's wicked good there there are flaws in this picture and it also does leave open some questions um so, and to your point about the origin of the alien, you know, it's very interesting. What we've done now is gone from Prometheus going into Covenant, and this is a David, in a sense, movie. David's a prick. Like, he was not a nice, really a nice guy in the first one, and now he's a homicidal lunatic with obviously some circuits loose. And... What and that's I sort of appreciate that because you're not falling on, you're not falling on your your tropes, uh, and such. And you've created this character now that we got to follow through, and we know the evolution. I, the audience knows the evolution of synthetics. I gotta jump in on that, though, Dimitri. This is Stephen from the booth who has also seen the movie. What I what I what I don't agree on is you saying that David is a prick, because I don't think he's a prick. Because oh. it's like you know. You, you can't judge what he does by the same moral standards of humanity. Like, you, the whole point of the movie is that, like, humans are looking for their creator and they don't know what they'll do when they meet him. He's met his creator. That, it, the movie opens with him meeting his creator, so he's already unimpressed with his creator, so now he has to surpass him. You look at what humanity does. We consume everything around us and we genetically engineer animals to be more edible and things to taste better and things to be bigger. and things Like, he's literally doing the exact same things that humanity does. He's literally converting a race of aliens and he's converting this entire planet to be his mecca, to be his creation. He's creating the aliens the same way humanity created him. So it's like he's not human. So you can't really call him a dick for what he's doing because he's literally doing kind of the same thing we did. So I guess you missed the part where he wiped out an entire race I didn't species. miss the part. You I know, mean, like, that's that homicidal. Too, that's homicidal, and not all humans are like that. I mean, he's a liar. He's not exactly. I mean, he's not a nice guy. He's he really has gone off. He's the not bend. a guy though. But, but regardless, I, I get Steve, I get Stephen's point in the sense that the moral compass, you, you you know, there's an evolution of a moral compass, if you will, depending on your spectrum in the evolution chain. You know, right. and um, I think I have it later on, but. Um, you know, I mean, in some sense, David and, like, the aliens later on, or I read it somewhere, so I could be confusing things, but, um, you know, there might be future generations that look at us no differently than we look at the dinosaurs. 
I think is what Stephen's ultimate point is in, in some respects. Yeah, and God has made some bad people too. So, you know, when, when Wayland made David, he was he's a bad egg. I mean, he really is a bad egg, and he's very extremely narcissistic in his way. I mean, this is a guy who, in Prometheus, he modeled himself after after Lawrence of Arabia, right? Which which some can praise as a hero, and others can praise as really as as villainous. So, like, he is extremely narcissistic, and he's he thinks about he's only doing this creation to come up with a perfect entity that's better than humans so because humans created him and it's the way that he goes about doing it you know he's just i mean what i'm a saying bad dude like him wiping out that race was the same as humans burning a field of corn to grow a different plant it's the exact it's like to him it's the same thing and i i think my favorite line of this entire movie was when he misquotes um oh, i can't i can't remember the, the name was of it, it byron byron and uh Walter's response is one wrong note can change the symphony. Like, I think that was the, it shows that God's not infallible because he's supposed to be God in this sense. And it also shows that he's got a screw loose. A little bit. Yeah. yeah a little bit. <laughs> I mean, Walter says, I can't let you get off this planet. Marissa, where do you stand on this? Uh, well, I, I think it, the, when we like first see Prometheus, you like, you get the understanding of what uh, David is and what he's supposed to be doing. And then and I felt like in covenant, it definitely established that, yes, he, he isn't as great as you think he would be. He might have exceeded the, the race or what um, he, like the, the creator, I forget his name, I'm sorry. Um, Wayland. like originally wanted him to be because he exceeded his expectations. But we didn't think that he would turn to, like, to a dark side, wiping out an entire race. And I think that's where everyone might be you know, convoluted and twisted with the, the whole idea is like, is he good? Is he bad? He's definitely bad because he went in a way that everyone wasn't really expecting. Well, this, right. is the, this is, this is a different way to sort of look at it. So let me ask you guys this. I mean, is it in some sense, because humans created David, um, and therefore humans are not perfect and not without fault. Is it saying the engineers are God in that sense is also, in part, you know, by your own admission, that, right. yeah, we have bad humans. Yeah, we have bad humans, but... So, go ahead, go well, ahead. Well, no, I'm, I'm just saying in that respect, is, it, is the point in some sense, like, uh, that the ultimate creator of whatever is not perfect. True. Despite us thinking that. And we knew that in Prometheus, <laughs> that Wayland was not perfect. And let us also not forget that David perpetuated the tragedy that, that befell the Prometheus. He was the guy that put the little black goo in Shaw's husband boyfriend that perpetuated you know and he slept with all of this and at the same time like when you think of like him as ash he just well he lied and he kept things hidden even from shaw uh so you know he started that tragedy um now at the time it wasn't as it was a little bit more ambiguous uh as to why but now in, in covenant at least there's full answer you know i mean he's stranded on this planet what's he gonna do other than try to with this goo uh you know he's gonna try to create a perfect being regardless not a not an android but just a being from scratch mm -hmm. so to speak yeah i think what people are surprised is that like we kind of he david was you know created to wipe out this race or you know to 
to beat everyone in that sense. But I don't think people expected him to also turn on the human race as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, and well, he wasn't even created to wipe out this race. Remember, Prometheus's journey was to see who created humanity. You had Waylon, who just wanted to live longer, and you had Shaw, who was the faith-based person, who wanted to meet God. And then you come to find out, well, if you... Because the, the, the twist in Prometheus is, you created us, but now you want to destroy us. Why is it you want to destroy you? You created us. So, like, what did we do that was so bad that you're going to send this ship to, to wipe us out? Um, and I think with David, I think uh, he just took it to... Well, these guys are going to uh, wipe out humanity. Let me see what happens if I drop it on them and see what happens. And notice, too, what happens to that civilization is something similar that happens to the engineer at the very beginning of Prometheus when he's in the primordial land and he drinks the goo and he just falls apart and he's by the, he's by the waterfall and his DNA goes in and hence mm -hmm. supposedly humanity was created from that. They didn't have waterfalls for him, for that goo to drop into. He just wiped them out. And he wanted to be God, pretty much start off from scratch. Mm -hmm. So, and what else are they going to do? And at that time, I think it's also essential. What happened to Shaw? And there's a, pre, a little prequel that sort of says what happens to Shaw. Because she's not in that scene at all. And it's still David with the very blonde hair. Um so it's just a very interesting uh, scene, and I know a writer talks about that because there was a lot of hemming and hawing as to where they were going to put that scene in the movie. Um, so, yeah, it's very, the, the movie has a lot of these questions that I think th this is what makes talking about movies fun, like interesting. We can learn and... Well, let's, let's take a quick step back and then we'll, we'll return to deep diving in terms of the story. Um, you know, uh, originally... You know, when, when they were going to do this, Damon Lindelof, um, there was some doubt whether or not he would participate, and ultimately he didn't. Um, we can talk about that, but um, skimming ahead, the 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 it was originally going to be called Alien Lost Paradise, um, and as Scott says, because if if it is paradise, paradise cannot be what you think it is. Paradise has a connotation of ex being extremely sinister or ominous, um, and and then in that respect. Uh, you know, they, as I mentioned, David Lindelof um, wasn't a part of it. Uh, there was an original draft written, and then um, uh, John Logan came in and, and did a lot of touch-ups. Um, Logan's worked on uh, Gladiator and things, um, things of that nature. So he's done the the newer series of Giant James Bond and also mm -hmm. Penny Dreadful. So. Yes, yeah, so he even wrote a Star Trek. Indeed. Um, and so he was kind of came in there um, to combine elements of horror with Alien and the phil uh, philosophical elements of Prometheus. And he says of it um, with Alien uh, Covenant, I really just wanted to write something that had the feel of the original Alien because seeing that movie was one of the great uh, events of my youth. It was so overpowering in terms of what it communicated to me and its implications that when I started talking to Ridley about what, um, what became Alien Covenant, I said, you know, that... You know, that was a hell of a scary movie. I wanted to write a horror movie because um, uh, the grand elements of Alien are so profound. We tried to recapture that with Alien Covenant while also trying to pay homage to the deeper implications of Prometheus in terms of tone, pace, and how we chose to play this particular symphony. 
um, we want to create a really frightening movie. Yeah. And so I completely agree. You know, I mean, and I think that goes to my earlier point that I felt like there were a lot of the scenes that the same beats as the original. Yeah, and it's uh, Mark Huffman, uh, producer on this movie. He's even, you know. He goes on, Ridley's first line was, we're going to make a hard R-rated film and we're going to need a lot of claret. Uh, C-L-A-R-E-T. I pronounce it claret, maybe it's claret, but in other terms, in English, and plain English, that's film blood. And he literally, uh, he Ridley himself has been quoted. He's uh, that, that HBO did a first look and he goes, I want to make a movie that scares the shit out of the audiences. Now, I'm not entirely sure he scared the shit out of the audiences, but he at least did, went back to form. Um, and bringing in John Logan was a, it was, you know, it was, it was really smart and well thought out. One thing, too, to understand is that Ridley Scott is truly an auteur. Okay. The writers even had to go to Ridley Scott for, hey, I want to suss this out. What do you think of this? How should this go? And whatever. And Scott had a clear vision. You also understand he was an art director. This guy storyboards everything. And I'm sure they use some semblance of a pre-vis, like in this digital age, but he draws everything out. He has it in his head. And he's pretty stringent on staying the course of what he wants. So Alien, good or bad... You know, he's somebody that definitely like, yeah, you might be able to point to a writer, but at the end of the day, they're working for him. They're, they're working he's not working off the script. Exactly. Yeah. And even when it comes to editing and putting scenes somewhere here or there, you know, he really, I mean, number one, it shows his passion. But again, at 81, that's a lot of work. You got to give the guy credit. <laughs> you know, he's not slowing down, which is amazing to me. Amazing. I mean, in some sense, ironically, like um, the, the same way you could argue David's trying to perfect various things. I th- you know, I think the movie and, and where Scott is in his career, I think he's course correct. Like, that's what he's doing. He's trying to perfect the franchises that he's already had, um, for better or worse. I think that's just what he's doing. Um, but <laughs> going back to the idea, um, I want to talk about David's counterpart, Walter, and get your get your guys' opinions on him because... You know, um, it's it's just so interesting in that, in that respect to, to see them interact, and and we had made mention and the the flute scene in particular. Um, so I definitely want to dissect that more. Um, I, well, I, I liked Walter because you know he was set up as the better version of what David should have been. Obviously, he's an, the newer model, the upgrade. So you're rooting for Walter throughout, and even like the twist at the end when you think Walter is the one who survived, and it's not right. Um, so, like, it shows that if David had died earlier, Walter would have been the, the better version that's out there. And right. maybe would not have destroyed an entire race. So, like, so, Walter could have set up a whole different scenario and outcome of what Alien Covenant could have been had David not died. But why is, David died. why is Walter the better version? He's the version that's subservient to humans because they put restrictions on him. Like, why is that the better version? I, I think I think I'm saying better version as like he he has more humanistic qualities and he's the better character to watch, um like better in the sense of humanity that he's the one he we should be rooting for. Yeah, well, and to there is a piece of dialogue where Walter when he comes back when he gets resurrected 
from when we think he's dead. And he said, you know, there have been some upgrades or maybe it happened sooner. But there's dialogue in which Walter says to David, you know, there have been upgrades made. You were found to be too human. You were found to be and that scared people. It was to, you know, they added almost like a morality chip to, to Walter where David didn't have a morality chip at all put into him, it seemed. And yes, he's like, I'm here to serve. I'm here to protect as well. And yet I think what's interesting about the dialogue, I think that David was trying to suss out Walter. Do I have he's he's a brother, but is he going to be on? Can I sway him to my team? Because having him would be great, but when he says he, he gives him the he gives him the Corleone kiss of death, so to speak, and says you know you disappointed me, you know. But I think he saw a brother in arms, but he couldn't sway him over to his side, um, and I and I think that parody was very interesting. Now we could talk about the twist. Look, as soon as David cut off his hair. And walked into the room with the short hair that Walter had. It just, oh, Walter's not long for this world. Like, something's going to happen. Um, and that, to me, is what led to that, that flute scene. I thought that flute scene is where Walter was going to buy it. So that's why all this is going on. There's this undercurrent of that suspense for me. But as soon as he cut his hair, to me anyways, I was like, okay, there's got to be a switcheroo at some point. How are they going to resolve? How are they going to get away with that? Yeah. So, I mean, for for me, and this is sort of a very basic question, but I'd love to get your guys' point on it anyway. As soon as I knew that, okay, these, these two characters, they're exploring something and one's going to switch with the other. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, the, it's just it's just too simple in terms of the way it's set up. Right. You know what I mean? And when you look that closely alike. Yeah, well, yeah, when you look the exact same. And I, we just covered another sci-fi horror movie, Life. Not, right, not that long ago, where we know there there was a switcheroo because there was two things of the exact same. So, right, I, I think that's a it's recurring true. trope in sci-fi films where there's a switch somewhere. Yeah, I mean, let me. I, I guess the question is, do you think they could have done? Do you think the movie could have benefited if they weren't similar and still explored the same ideas and not hinge on the fact that oh, let's do let's do a quick ruse. Ultimately. David, here's the here's what happened, you know, and again, this is going to be one of the questions that that I have for everybody for the panel here. But ultimately, David wanted to take over Covenant, you know, 2000 colonists, 100 and what is it, 75 embryos. I mean, that's a lab for him. To continue experimenting and doing whatever. Well, yeah, even like the moment when he was asking all the specific numbers of how many people in yeah. your colony, how many are you carrying? Right. He, like his eyes just lit up because he knew it was an opportunity yeah. for him. So exactly. And so in order to do that, it makes more sense from a story-wise that you need somebody who's like, how does he replace... It would have been hard for him to replace someone that didn't look similar to him unless he changed and he somehow really fakes out the crew of Covenant 
by like pretending to be nice and getting on board. I think by having the double, number one, it explores what 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 uh, Stephen was talking about, like what makes him better or what makes uh, Walter the better person or whatever. So it gives, I think it, it creates a little more tension and from a story standpoint it makes that plot easy to transcend because he can take over he can talk like walter he obviously can look like walter so it, it just well, makes it I'm, well i guess that's my point is that it is easier and therefore that at certain points it was they because it was easier they went the easier route and didn't challenge themselves a little bit at times to fool with the switch a little bit more. Um, so to that point, I, I, um, I want to transition into uh, Daniels, um, not only as the new Ripley, if you will, but um, she, you know, she, at the end, the, she realizes, Oh, it's not Walter, it's him. Um, and so I definitely want to talk about that. And then again, her character in general, but let's, let's use the ending as a, as a launch pad since we're sure. the ties too bad David it was and her. a second too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my, one of my questions is that that really is a, a plot hole is two things. But A, what happened to David's neck wound mm-hmm. that she inflicted upon him? Um, and in fact, that that goes to, uh, well, let's call it my first Blade Runner reference. When she does that to him, she takes the nail, that, that, that prehistoric nail, and she shoves it in under his chin and what does David say? He goes, that's the spirit. Well, if you remember from Blade Runner, when Deckard is fighting Batty and he hits him with a crowbar, Batty says the same exact dialogue. And I just found that very interesting, being that it's a Ridley Scott film. He directed that. So there's a little, uh, a little Blade Runner nod right there. But what happened to that? Because it was also known that Walter being an upgrade, they showed that he could sort of... I guess maybe depending on the size of the wound, he could regenerate over that. Where David could not. I mean, he was stapling his face together. Mm -hmm. So the crew of the Covenant, or what was left of the Covenant, either did not, were not fully aware of what Walter was capable of doing. I don't know. It's just one of those little plot holes that, you know, how did she not recognize before yeah. that it wasn't Walter? Mm-hmm. But in the presence of this, man, does it make it a dark movie? I mean, she's in cryo. She's chopped. She can't do anything. And she knows. And what's going to happen to her? Because there's this little prologue prequel called The Crossing in which David is with Shaw. And he puts her in a cryo bed. We don't know what happened to Shaw pretty much after her being put to sleep in the cryo bed. We don't know what's going to happen to Tennessee and to Daniels. Does he need them at any point to steer the ship or Cultivate this to, colony. to do anything? Yeah, I mean, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, I guess here's my overall gripe <laughs> with the movie. Um, in general, with horror, at least to me, and you guys feel free to disagree, I like it when the when the character does something that you would suggest to them and they still get and it still doesn't work because in that sense you're like oh they're doing everything they can whereas throughout this movie whether it's that or um even the so many times like oh i'm gonna go off alone (laughs) uh it's horror 101 of okay you're doomed and so in terms of in terms of daniel's 
I mean, it might as well just be a lesson. Like, if there's two people, and one's good and one's evil, and they look exactly alike, question them at every moment. You know? Um, and so, you just, yeah, it, it, it just felt a little bit lazy to me in terms of execution. I feel like the entire movie, though, just it was dumb decision after dumb decision, and it felt, <laughs> it felt too dumb. Like, are we going to completely forget the first scene where the girl lands, and she's like, she throws her friend in the medical bay, and then slips on blood and pulls a gun, doesn't know how to do anything, like, refuses to quarantine, like, just dumb decision after dumb decision. Like, I was physically cringing during that whole 20-minute scene because I'm just like, these people are supposed to be the crew, they're supposed to be trained, they're supposed to be, like, exceptional at their jobs, they're running a ship with 2,000 embryos on board, and they just are acting like idiots. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been reading this a lot, you know, and and couple of things number one when you're put in a situation like that you're not trained when you look at what happens in aliens some of the people are doing stuff in there and they're marines and they can't handle the situation they don't they're not marines that woman was a pilot and i will agree with you that character was made to be a little bit wimpy i go you're tough as nails when you're bringing this ship down through a plasma storm (laughs) but yet this all falls apart and you don't know what the hell to do i do agree with that sentiment there but more to a point the question that i have that brings this in is is it okay for an audience to be more educated than the characters in, in, in a movie. Because that's what we have in Alien Covenant. And people said, well, you know, why the hell did they go to that planet in the first place? Why, why did they do that? And I think it was great dialogue between Daniels and Oral about that. You know, listen, we've got our thing to do. And he's like... You, I, I understood Orem's point of view as well. Like, nobody wants to go back in these cryo things, and this could be paradise. I was thinking... If it were the Enterprise, they would have gone on to explore that planet because it just pops up out of nowhere. They would have gone on. So I don't fault them for at least trying. Now, everything else, we as an audience are educated. We're educated because we've seen Alien. We know that when Kane, you know, Kane sees this egg, he doesn't know what the hell it is. So it makes sense for him to put his, to like look and what is this thing where there's, and then when the, when the face hugger pops out, that's the first time we see a face hugger. So we're educated in everything. This being a prequel, these characters know nothing about nothing about what's really going on around them. So we can laugh when David says, oh, no, go ahead, take a look. It's perfectly safe. What makes that funny is we as the audience know that it's not perfectly safe to do that. Just the dramatic irony. But dramatic, that's a great way to put it. So is it stupid for Orem to look into that egg? Well, no, because he has no experience otherwise of what the hell that thing is. Only we as the audience do. So does it harm the movie? And in some cases, I sort of have to say so much is being written about people making it, bad decisions. I don't think it harms the movie because you got to remember, like the original Alien came out years ago decades ago so there's a whole there's a few generations that probably haven't seen the original movie so if you are going to watch this movie first i still think for the newer audience who are watching the newer generation it's still a big surprise it's it's, it is a big scare if for us generation that have seen the original it's not as scary and again that's why i say some beats are the exact same Mm -hmm. that type of exploring the egg and knowing that something's going to pop up 
that wasn't scary because I've seen it before. Right. That, that didn't feel original. But for the new people who've never seen Alien before, it's, that's a scary moment. Yeah, it, my, my stance is this: um, it's a balancing act. Like I, you know, Marissa said, dramatic irony, and that's what I would I would call it too. However, if you know that there's that dramatic irony as a writer, director, and, and, and just general crew and cast, you have to utilize that and, you know, perhaps at times you have to speed certain things up because, okay, we don't need to see the whole tension of, oh, my God, we know where it's going um, and so forth. So I think they, they, they should have copped to that a little bit more in the sense that, yeah, you have dramatic irony here. You know what's going on. And so you don't have to play it like it's the first time seeing these things. Right. And that's where I think, um, not always, but there was definitely fault at times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. I don't disagree. And and again, you got to remember, horror movies were going through a big change in the 70s, too. There were new tropes being introduced by the likes of Ridley Scott, Wes Craven, uh, John Carpenter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they were they were changing things that ended up becoming, later on in years, they ended up becoming cliché. You know, so where there is a switcheroo or a cat gets thrown at somebody or so these weren't horror tropes that were really being utilized um, back in the 70s. They were actually sort of kind of being invented at the time. So um, now with all of this, if you're a horror fan, you, you, you know, you know to tread lightly. And we know, don't look into the egg. But it was like, and we joked about it. Curiosity kills the cat. Curiosity kills does. the cat, and that line was even used in yeah. Covenant. So, um, it's just very interesting. It's so true because people have, you know, I know Steve. You're not the first person that said these people made dumb decisions, but I say they made stupider de- decisions Steve. in Prometheus. That, Whereas that's in pretty, this movie... That's pretty fair that they made dumb decisions in Prometheus. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, all right, so they have a ship that can scan, like, cycles away, but they can't see that there's a dead civilization on the planet. And I got to just accept that they're going to be stupid. I mean, they built a ship that has four pieces of foil to generate electricity, but if one piece is a little bit crinkled, none of them work. <laughs> well, it was a neutrino blast that, that actually short-circuited out the entire... It wasn't just that. It short-circuited out the entire yeah. ship. And they explained it. There's like, it, it's a weather thing. And there's nothing we could have done about it. But you it. know what's interesting, though, about that, too, is that Orem goes and says, how could we have avoided that? Like, is that... You know, they're saying, look, it's bad luck. And he's like, I don't believe in luck or good luck, bad luck. How, how are we better educated so that we mm-hmm. know Avoid about it. this? There was no way they could have avoided that that incident, which is interesting because in Alien, there was really no way for them avoid to avoid landing on L, what became LV-426. They were diverted there. They were purposely sent to that planet off course, where this one, it really was just, it was bad happenstance that that happened. And they end up finding a planet and they find this planet that has breathable air. You know, they, they were able, you know, some people were saying, how come they didn't have masks on? I go, well, there was nothing on that planet that suggested that they would need any mask. It wasn't a primordial sea. It was, everything was, as they would say in Star Trek, it was a class M planet. It was a breathable like Earth planet. Yeah, there was a line saying like it's. It's a planet that they could like cultivate, correct? On, and it like that they can create a whole civilization. So, so like if they did the science behind it, it was like we could we could inhabit this land. We could, yeah. This could potentially, and it could shorten our trip by seven years. So, 
it, it, that that decision to go there didn't bother me. Um, there were just like a little other plot points, but if you wanted to go back to the end, um, well, more so, I just wanted to go back to Daniels. To Daniels, yeah. Um, well, you know, I like Daniels as a character. That character had gone through a lot as well. Um, right off the beginning, she loses her husband, James Franco, <laughs> and uh, so random. Sad for anybody. It's sad for. <laughs> It is, and I mean, and Danny McBride and James are good friends, so it kind of makes sense. It, I think James not Franco an alien. was too, but no, like I think that it was just a cameo appearance, and it was too much of a big appearance that that kind of took me out of the film. Well, there, there, there are two. Uh, it's interesting that you say that because the um, apparently his uh, that character was in the movie a lot more. Uh, and and again, there is a prequel called um, The Last Supper in which he's featured in it uh, a lot more than he is in, in Alien Covenant. And it's interesting that they had a lot more dialogue and what they wanted to do is to sort of kind of position him opposite of Orm. Or Orm was this faith-based person, much like Elizabeth Shaw. And apparently the, 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 the Franco character was not. But they needed, they felt there, there was, it was hard to try to crowbar more of that character to have that dialogue into the movie. And they felt, too, that by putting Franco in the movie, um, they, want, they would hope for the opposite effect. That people, when he died, because he was going to die very quickly, people would say, oh, I, I was hoping to see him in the movie a little bit more. I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> glad know? they didn't, though, because had we had James Franco's character, Orm, and then Walter and David, I think it's, like, if you think about them as four different people, right. I think that's too many male characters to watch in a film to, to the point where, like, who are we supposed to be watching? Like, who's the main character? Right. Who's the main protagonist or antagonist? So I'm kind of glad they took him out. So it's just that it's less amount of characters to follow. Right, I don't disagree with you. I mean, it, it does pare it down, but to, to Ridley's idea was that this was a ship that not only had its external problems, but it had this problem that there was this captain who is not the original captain and who is now going to lead the mission and maybe make some terrible, some terrible mistakes. James Franco's character is in that teaser a good bit more, and I think the different versions of the screenplay as it went along, he did have a larger role, and I do agree that adding... Or having a character in the movie only just to kill him off after we get to know him, I agree. It's too much, mm -hmm. too much. So ultimately, I think they made a good, you know, a good decision. And if you see the Last Supper, it actually is a, it's a really cool scene that was filmed that could be put into the movie because we see the crew of the Covenant actually socializing. The night before they go into crime. So that has like a religious undertone to yes. it with the Last Supper. And then if you follow that with the opening scene of the actual movie, Covenant talking about David and all that. So well, if you look at that picture. A lot. Yeah, there is a picture of the, the Covenant crew at supposedly at that Last, Last Supper. Supper. And James Franco is actually wearing brown robes. <laughs> it's so, an interesting uh, I, picture. Since we're talking about it, can you explain kind of what it is? I mean, um, it's interesting like typically like deleted scenes and additional stuff come out after the fact like i'm talking about like dvd release stuff right um whereas it seems like this is very much part of the folklore 
and yet it's not in the movie, and here we are talking about it. So, you know, care to kind of expand and explain? They tried to do a little bit with Prometheus as well. Uh, in fact, they had a couple of these videos about the creation of David. Uh, in fact, there's a, there, there is a video, too, available called Meet Walter, which is about making Walter. Personally, that one's okay, but I think the important ones are The Crossing, because we do see Numi Rapace, uh, you know, as, as David suggests, listen, after Prometheus, we got out of there, uh, I was in pretty bad shape, she put me together, and I do believe that David actually had affection for her in his weird, crazy way, because um, we, we know in Covenant what happened, but... He even says to her, you're a very caring and compassionate person. And I think it also says, well, what happened to that character? Is she going to be in this movie? Is she going to be in Covenant? Because the whole of Prometheus was about that character and how her faith ended up being questioned. I think it's I think they're cool little prologues that may have at one point maybe it been in the movie but maybe maybe it took him too long like maybe there was no place to crowbar it in to not like whether you're adding more characters we talk about this a lot you have to pick and choose it's like a sophie's choice it's like i like that but if i take it out i can tighten things up and it's not going to make things longer then what do i do with this scene because i was thinking well, where do you put the final supper the last supper into this movie i mean that would mean maybe you take out the david whalen scene you know to put this in there I don't know. I'm just glad that it is out there in the interwebs that people can see this, both the prologues. I think more so, like, the, the last supper scene might have, like, established the, the crew itself as uh, as a group that the audience can attach themselves to and, like, actually like these characters and whatnot. And, but even though they're, most of the crew dies anyways, just like in every movie, I, <laughs> again, it doesn't, it's not needed because we can't, attach ourselves to this character and, and, um, and then, like, feel for them when they die. Yeah. I, I mean, it would be nice to have had a little bit, but I'm glad that it's out there. There was, even, there was even one with Danny McBride where he's, like, saying, Jesus, you know, before this gig, I was in, like, prison. Like, I was like this, and I wasn't, like, the nicest guy in the world, he goes, but this, this has given me a second chance. He goes, go figure, a guy like me, like, is in charge of, like, all of this money. Like, this is an expensive ship. He goes... It's a lot of fun. So I like that they made these little vignettes that you can choose to watch online. They do flesh out characters, but they're not in the movie to your point because it just is, it would be too much right. in a sense. It would make the movie longer, I think. We can't get attached because they're going to die anyways. Yeah. Fair I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, I, I, I just always question the, um, the idea of how how much it actually expands and whatever, you know, I think for me, I was just like the idea that, okay, what you put in your movie is just standalone. No, you know, there shouldn't be any other contact. Yeah. Like it, that's it. How They're do you done. make the movie go forward? We talk about this a lot, actually in a lot of movies, you need to move them. The movie has to have a momentum. And we've talked about like, we, we, we all feel for the most part that it's David's movie. So guess mm -hmm. what? Anything not related to David or Daniels, you know, not, not gonna, yeah. But speaking of that, let's let's talk about Daniels as the new fa as the new Ripley, um, because uh, you know to me, I don't know. I, I guess in some sense she does get lost in all of the rest of the crew as well. Like she's not unlike Ripley, 
She just seems like a like a walking figurehead that's supposed to be this, but isn't really that at all. Yeah, I Until mean, the I, com- end, maybe. I completely agree, and I'm all for like woman power, but she didn't seem as powerful as she should have been. She didn't seem as authoritative as what Ripley was, because we're talking about like I Stephen made a point where they're like they didn't question anything; they just uh, did things without like really thinking. And I, I feel like Ripley always did that, and an alien, and like she's the one questioning all the war- quarantine and all. Like she's saying all the things that the audience should be thinking. And I, I feel like Daniels is just like the more emotional kind of nurturing character, and she questioned Orem in in some sense of the word, but she never really had that moment of authoritative. No, I'm taking over. I'm I'm controlling this. So she didn't seem as powerful as she could have been to lead this movie, even though it was. David and Walter. What I, what I really liked about her character was the the play between her, David, and Walter in terms of sh- she's kind of the alien to David in that the scene where David is like standing in front of the the earlier version of the xenomorph and like trying to communicate with it by being close to it, and he says you have to gain their trust, you have to be upfront with them, and then the conversation between David and Walter about how oh you love her and it's like. When you rewatch that, you're thinking of it more like, oh, he's talking about her as if she's a pet. She's, he's not talking about her, like, because in his way, uh, what's her what's her name? Uh, Daniels? From Prometheus. The, the oh, uh, Elizabeth Shaw. Shaw. With Shaw. Shaw, like, he's talking about how he loved Shaw, but really he was just gaining her trust as if she was an alien to experiment on her, just as he was doing with that alien. And now you have uh, him doing the same thing where you know, because of the familiarity through the face, he can take Walter's place and use her now as a guinea pig. Right. There is that trust that that, that was invoked from from Walter. Um, You know, the Daniels character to me is interesting. And and, and to take your point a little bit further, to to compare it to Ripley, it's, okay, it's, it's an interesting comparison because the crew of the Nostromo was a small crew, okay? They were a mining crew. All right. So there is a succession and Ripley was the third in command. And like 10 little Indians, it came down to where she was the one in command. And yes, she did question. She she questioned Dallas. She she was the one that talked very strongly about quarantine. Like you have to stay there. You have to do whatever. And I think with Daniels having that conversation with Orem puts her in the category of like, this isn't a good idea. We should just stick to plan Go to where we're supposed to go. We should, let's not do this. You know, it's it's and she vocalized it and she says, I want to I want to make this a formal complaint. Uh, and he's like, OK, I'll, I'll put it in the logs. And shit sort of kind of blew up from there. There was no she didn't want to be in the position. She barely had time to grieve the loss of her husband. All right. And now she's on this planet. They don't know what the hell's going on. She is questioning things. She's the character, I believe, that says, there, there, there are no animals here. Like, what's going on? She did question certain things, and she was starting to question David uh, um, and, and his motives. She was the detective, in a sense, because she was the one that found the, 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 the David's etchings. And we see with, with the Elizabeth Shaw... Again, she's just put into a position where she's like, uh, okay, I have so much to deal with. I have to get along with this. And then by the end of the movie, like, she was the one, too. In that great scene, she was at the flat top 
of uh, of that cargo ship that they dropped down, which is, I thought, a really great scene. And then she was the one that says, no, I'm bringing him to my turf. We're going to get him and flush him out of the airlock. Um, so I did see that she took that command, but at that point, there are only three people or two people left standing and one synthetic. Um, so... I liked how her character sort of became, she had to like become this character, even though she might've been a little bit reluctant of like even wanting to be there. I think she gets lost within the whole Walter David situation. Well, yeah. Cause I mean, ultimately by the end, right. All the things you've built her up to, to, to sort of be at the end, it gets trumped by the fact that she gets fooled. She loses airlock. Boom. You're in sleep. You're done. Good luck. Yeah, and I, I think the character it might also just be the actresses themselves, and nothing against Catherine Watterson. She she's a good actor too, but I think like Daniel's character just seems so well, like way more submissive than Ripley was. Ripley just commanded presence and authority, and Daniel's really didn't. I would, yeah, I would argue the same. Can I ask something to you guys and what you think of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious that like the whole. The whole familiarity breeds a sense of compassion with the aliens and, and whatever. Do you think that's the reason they made Daniels look so similar to Ripley? And that if he's going to be doing, if he's going to be creating, turning her into a mother for these next round of aliens, as we see when she sees the drawings and she's like, what is this? And he's like, exactly what I'm going to do to you. So basically we're assuming that she's going to become the incubator for the next round of xenomorphs. Um, is that planting the seeds for why the aliens have a connection to Ripley just based on her similarity to Daniels or am I just reading into things too much? I mean, I've read that theory all over the internet. Um, so you're not wrong for thinking it, whether or not it's true. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, ha- I mean, to me that I don't know what the basis is. Um, you know, I think with, I think with, with Daniels, number one, Ridley Scott, is a proponent of women. Um, a lot of his movies have strong women involved. And Daniels, I mean, you don't want you don't want somebody to be a complete ripoff of Ripley. Ripley's Ripley. Uh, you know mm-hmm. that that's all there is to it. And it's not that Ripley wanted to become a hero. Okay? She was a reluctant hero. She was very, she didn't want to be in that position. She just had to take charge and survive. Okay, and then even in Aliens and. I'm not going to go into three and, and resurrection and such, but when you look at Ripley in Aliens, you know she's the one that's crying wolf and saying, "You no, like you can't do that." Like they were they were pinning the loss of the ore and everything on her. Uh, if you watch the director's cut of Aliens, and that's the only cut I think that people should watch, you know she lost. A daughter. She was lost in space for over 57 years, and her daughter had died. She lost her life. And for her to go back and fight these aliens, that was a big deal. She didn't really want to be part of that thing. With with Daniels, this is all fresh new, new experience. Now, I think Daniels is sort of kind of like, in this point, she's sort of kind of like an Elizabeth Shaw. Because in one aspect, you can think that we were going to see Elizabeth Shaw in this movie. You know, I mean, she's the one that goes off with David. And so you would figure that she would pop up in one way, shape or form. Well, Daniel's now we I don't know what's going to happen and how many years between Covenant and the next Alien movie is going to take place. 
But we may not even see Daniels ever again outside of just to learn to know what happened to her, to learn her fate. So there may not be Daniels. I mean, Daniels is asleep. She's still alive to our knowledge, but just sleeping. But by the time we get to the next Alien movie, we may learn her fate and she may not be a factor in it. You know, because Elizabeth Shaw certainly wasn't. Well, I think, like, they built Shaw up to be a really big character because, like, Prometheus, all I really remember is Shaw and a little bit of David. But in this one, you have more alpha male characters to follow. And, again, that's why I think Daniels just gets lost within everybody. Mm -hmm. She's not as memorable as Shaw was, as Ripley is, you know. I don't know. I like the, the last, say, three, the last quarter of the movie... I thought Daniels was was pretty awesome. Um, And then just the anger and just wanting to flush this out uh, was interesting to me as well. Uh, And very fun, and it was good action for me um, to see that whole thing play out. Let me ask this. Do the the prequel movies have to always end on a bad note going into... Because if Alien isn't the happiest of endings, but at least, like, we succeeded in some sense... So that's a happy ending. Uh, this, you're kind of getting to there. And, you know, Prometheus doesn't really have a happy ending. No. no. This doesn't have a happy ending. No. Are we going to have a happy ending? Uh, well, I think you, if you look at these as prequels, you kind of know there's another one coming, so they have to set it up at the end with a type of cliffhanger to look forward to the next one, where the original Aliens, were they expecting a sequel to that one? I'm not sure, because Aliens at the end of that... Kind of wraps itself up. There is a nice happy ending at that. Mm-hmm. Well, she despite the wins. fact everyone dies, but like it, it like has a full, you know, closure at the end. It does. This these because it is set in a th- tr- tr- trilogy. I don't even know if it's, it's trilogy yeah. prequel setup. You kind of know there's another one coming. And and to your point, Phil, too, it it, it can't. I mean, Alien sets it up. I mean, we know in Alien. I mean, that crew is doomed. Like, we learned that that crew is doomed. From the moment we saw that ship come up, uh, you know, after the title sequence, we learned that that ship was doomed. Uh, The the, the whole crew was just being sent to their death just to pick up this organism. You know, Aliens does actually have a happy ending, which gets all pissed away when Fincher does Alien 3 and kills off Hicks and Newt. But at the end of Aliens, we've got... Ripley with a surrogate daughter and a potential, like, you know, life mate or, or, mm-hmm. or a potential, you know, and they're all asleep. They blew up the planet. No more aliens. You know, so and, and it does, that movie at least ends up on a lighter note. But I think going into, if you're going to be leading up to LV426, we're doomed. We're doomed. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's because we know what happens. So how they get there, that's what I'm just like, let's, no. let's just get there already. Um, let's not take three more movies. Well, Come on, Mr. Scott. You're not getting younger. <laughs> um, I want to go to you, Marissa, um, my resident uh, Catholic. Oh, God. Uh, well, no, Covenant. I want to talk about, yeah. like, I okay. mean, it's in the title. Uh, mm-hmm. It's obviously very symbolic. They changed the title of Paradise to that. Um, so obviously very symbolic in that sense. So... Explain the full meaning of covenant. Uh, I, I love how I'm the one that has to explain. Listen, it. I can read what I got. 
Or, well, go for it, because you, you did the research on, on the covenants. You've done so. research your whole life on this <laughs> subject. All right. So the, the, the way, um, in terms of I was able to pull it um, and how they cite it towards the movie, uh, covenant is an agreement or a promise. In biblical terms, one of the covenants between God and humanity was a promise by God never to wipe clean the earth with water as he had done in the flood. Another was the giving of the law to Israel through Moses. It was an agreement that the Israelites would follow God's commandments and God would protect and guide the nation if they kept their vow. It is possible that the covenant in the title refers to an agreement between the engineers and humanity, or perhaps that the engineers plan to wipe out their species via a flood of their own creation. Mm-hmm. Agree? Yeah. Disagree? Yeah, there's there's multiple covenants. Covenants, if you're gonna like read the Bible and whatnot, like the the two main ones are the ones that I was thinking of, and the ones you just pointed out because I'm reading this also your notes. Um, like covenant is the promise to like. Uh, a, a compromise to never do something again. Like, uh, God made the covenant with Noah to, like, save all the animals or, like, the two of the best and I'll wipe out the earth, but I'll never do it again. Um, so, and I think it's, <clears throat> if you're going to do the symbolism with this one, it's, if you're setting it up, you technically wiped out the earth. Like, they, they wiped out the plan, they wiped out the race. To do it again, are they going to do it again? Let's hope not. Yeah. So it, it's like the setup of like there is going to be an apocalyptic moment, but let's like they're going to promise never to do it again. Yeah, and it's sort of like it sort of makes you question when you talk covenant that way. What's the situation like on Earth? Okay, that they that they're sending a pioneer ship to to colonize another planet like light years away, and so I mean, is has Earth? It's, it's, it's things really in bad shape on Earth? You know, is there this covenant that they're going to go and colonize a new planet and not and do their best not to repeat history to bring Earth into whatever state it is? That that that's the question we don't know. But if you are pioneering, it's either overpopulation, you need new digs, you need more space, or things are just so shitty on Earth that whether it's the environment and people are dying that. It's like Earth too. We gotta, we gotta. If we want to survive, we need to find a new planet, and we can't do what we did. But we have to make a covenant to, to to do this and do things better and maybe smarter. So it's an interesting play in the religious thing, and I also found it interesting again because you have another man of faith who that gets questioned all. His faith is questioned all the time. And sometimes maybe he put too much faith, put too much faith into David. He put some faith into people. Um, you know, he had his wife who, who again, tragically died. I mean, he lost a lot, too. Um, it wasn't as deep as the Elizabeth Shaw looking into faith and trying to find the creator and learning that this is a bioweapon and you know, wanting to meet the creator and said, what did she even asked him for me? What did we do? Why do you want to kill us? Um, they didn't give that much depth to Orm other than to say that he is very faith based. And he wasn't, in fact, he's so faith based that the company, I liked how they said the company, they didn't want him as captain because they felt he could have been too radical in his faith. And I thought that that was a very interesting line. And now all of a sudden he becomes captain and he really doesn't want to because the crew knows why the company didn't pick him for the job. So I think that that's very interesting that mm-hmm. he could have been too radical 
to be captain of the covenant. Absolutely. Um, any other story beats or, or characters, moments that you guys um, want to talk about before we head into more of the production side? Yeah, one more because uh, Stephen mentioned it. Um, and, and, and I found this to be extremely fascinating. Stephen, you talked about how David wanted to communicate with, with that white, with the white alien there. And, you know, he said something, if you can breathe on the nose of a horse, that horse is loyal forever. I, I don't know the exact oh, yeah. quote. Okay, so I said I was going to tie this into Alien, okay? So if you have Alien on disc, and if you have particularly the director's cut of, of Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien, and you listen to that commentary, um, Veronica Cartwright, even John Hurt is on it, along with Harry Dean Stanton. The scene where after they've lopped off Ash's head and they reconnect them so that they can learn, like, what's, what the hell's going on here? What are our chances? Veronica Cartwright goes on to say they completely changed the dialogue. What ended up in the theatrical release was not what they originally said, particularly Ash, because Ash originally said, and they changed it, Veronica Cartwright says... Ash's character said, no one has tried to communicate with this alien. Why has nobody tried to communicate? All you've done is to try to kill it. Maybe if you've taken the time to communicate, maybe you can learn some more from this. And I find that very interesting because that's not the dialogue that we hear in the original alien. But yet that theme of communicating with the alien is brought up in Covenant. Mm-hmm. in which the synthetic is trying to communicate. And there was, there seemed to be something there. I don't know if you can call it a bond, but when Orem comes up from behind him and he's like, look, get out of the way. Like, this, this thing has killed my, some crew. He's killed some of my crew. And when he takes those first shots, David's face is a look of terror and so much anger. Like, why did you have to do that? Like, I was bonding. I was making ways. And um, and that's when David pretty much says, he goes, no, you're going to tell me what's going on. Because he figures David knows a, lot, a hell of a lot more than what's happening. And he goes, you're gonna, and David's like, okay, follow me. And then, you know, it's fait accompli right there. But I just do find that it's interesting that Ridley Scott years ago Mm-hmm. In the dialogue, mm-hmm. had a communicate where a synthetic says, "Try think, talking to it." I think that was the moment where it set up that that covenant esque like because that's where I feel like David became like that godlike character mm-hmm. because when he's <laughs> explaining that he's going to wipe out the 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 whole existing race to start this whole new race, that's he's the leader of all of them. He's going to wipe everything clean so he can create a whole new race that's under his you know his power, right? So, um, w- go ahead. Well, I was going to mention another scene before we moved forward. Sure. Uh, did any, did it take anyone else kind of out of the movie with when uh, David drops the bombs on the alien race and everything's just completely CGI and it just kind of looks like a music video? <laughs> well, it kind of just got a little bit too visual effects, but visual effecty. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it it didn't really bother me because I was more like this was during the moment of expo- exposition, so I'm like really just learning what the heck is going on, whether like why the heck does it look like that. 
um, they didn't really bother me because, like, I think, again, it looks pretty. This, this film, like, the production value and the technology has completely, you know, <laughs> yeah. looks so exponentially better than the technology back in 1979. Yeah, no, it's, uh, no, it didn't bother me. What, what I loved about that scene is because prior to that, we have our, our, our doomed crew following David, and they're just looking at all this, like, what the hell? It was like a Vietnam bombing. And in fact, that's what Ridley Scott like was going for, like a, like a war kind of thing. And they have no idea what the hell just happened here. And again, if you saw this on it, seeing this on the big screen and seeing how tiny they are compared to this massive, like, temple that they're trying to walk up to and going through this, this thing of, of uh, creature destruction... Uh, Number one, that was crazy. How did they get there? And then we learned that it was David that wiped them out. Just like, oh, God. I I don't know. I I thought that that... And the way he overlooked that scene, and I believe there was the overvoice when he was talking about Osmiandis. Like... That to me, I thought it was... I thought it played... I thought it played powerful for for what it was. I did. I don't know. The CG, I don't know. It didn't. It didn't bother me as much. I just figured they were turning into that primordial goo that they sort of kind of happened. Yeah, they were like just melting down. Um, right. It was an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting scene. That for sure it was. <laughs> Believe it or not, most scenes were for me. Well, could I? But. I want to ask something too because we talk about recognition and we talk about communicating with 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 the creature. Okay. So, the first time I saw the movie, um, and I was talking with my friends after, my, the biggest thing that was gnarring at me was, why did David, A, sort of, obviously we know that he, when he switched the patch onto that sergeant guy, we knew that, he, I, oh, I know, it's like, when he switched that patch, it's like, oh, crap, he's going to make him into a, a xenomorph. And then when that happens, if he wanted the ship, why, why did he help Daniels in Tennessee? Like, if you're going to go through the process of bringing this on board the ship. Establishing trust. Right. Establishing trust just to get onto the ship. And there's that. No, the, I don't think so. The, other, the it, other notion is testing out a creation, seeing how viable it is. Okay. Until you perfect it. Well, because he had already ingested the embryos. He would have his, had to. Have, his yeah. plan was already to take the ship. His plan wasn't to bring an alien who's going to destroy the ship onto the ship. That wouldn't make any sense at all. I, and that's what bothered me because that's exactly what he did. Yeah, but he didn't mean to. They left the alien behind. No, 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 no. That no, that alien was born from uh, that sergeant guy. Remember the guy that got his face burned? Oh, you're talking about the face. Oh, that one that's yeah. on the ship itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when he switched out the patch. That mm. patch had the goo on it. Yeah, you're right. Um, and then he's in the med bay. The alien hatches from that guy, dispatches... Because we know that the alien that was on the planet got killed by Daniels, right? Yeah, Great that scene. one got... Ex- that one got killed. Yeah, and so he slaps the patch on. It's born. Uh, it wipes out the last remaining crew members with the exception of Tennessee and Daniels. And at that point, it's like, well... Why are you trying to save them? The only thing that I could personally come up with is since he talked communicating in recognition, 
Remember, he was tracking the alien and he could see it on a vid monitor. Well, it was a two-way video monitor. Okay, so the people could look up and talk to right, yeah. Walter or da you know or David, and the alien came up and clearly sees David, and its reaction and response was that secondary jaw just snaps out at him as if to kill him. And I'm thinking like David was like going, hmm, you know what? He doesn't recognize me. He's not. No, we need to get him off the ship. I have embryos. I can do whatever. I need these two people. I don't think I'm going to be able to communicate with this one. That's the only theory that I could come up with on that, is that he couldn't Quite breathe possibly, on like that, nose. Like, he can create the race, but not all of them. Like, this race could essentially turn on him, too. Like, he could have created the taste of his own medicine. <laughs> exactly. Really. So that was my theory as to why he decided That's to help. Daniels, not bad. Yeah, let not them bad. fight them off. I, I <laughs> think it's also safe. like it's like I think that's also like the build up to the quote unquote twist at the end, where we still this is at the point where the audience still thinks he's Walter, not David. So no. So right. since you brought up Covenant, I wanted to let's bring up a little bit about this production. Yeah, and about it. the and, and about uh, number one, Covenant was shot. Do you believe it was only about seventy four plus days? That they shot this movie, which I, I think is pretty. That's cool. That's a short, short filming. All considered for its scope, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, give or take. I mean, I, my guess would have been closer to eighty, maybe ninety. So it's not that far sure. off. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Only speaks to how how good they are. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, and, and, and I know we'll go, I think you have a whole thing of, of locations, but I wanted to talk about the Covenant, in which Scott goes on, he goes, this, being this is a pioneer ship, as in the old schooners on the prairie, um, it's not grungy, that this is a scientific mission transporting people and equipment to colonize another planet. Logically, he compares it to a cargo train, and actually, we saw, it's three sections, uh, hexagonal um, junctions and they're massive garages he come, he says each section would separate one time only thing land on pylons and you've then got a vast warehouse with all this equipment so i i find it fascinating how this ship was conceived and built as being and again it's very different from the nostromo it's not grungy like the Nostromo. Right. And what I liked about this Covenant ship was, like, we, we know that Ridley likes practical. And, again, this was a very practical set sure. um, for the Covenant because there was uh, in uh, there was over, like, 1,500 uh, electrical circuits. And you can actually walk onto the ship with the different sections that right. you talked about. But, like, everything was pretty much practical um, well, for, for the actual filming. Well, even so, like, that's uh, um, uh, Neil Corbolt says, um, even with the water drips, he's very precise on um, where the drips should be or how big they should be. Very meticulous about the look, uh, every small detail, and he loves physical things. Um, so even just down to like the water drips. Yeah. You know, <laughs> most, most people would be like, just give whatever. Me some. Yeah, but like the, the switches <clears throat> and dials, they, they were all tangible. 1500, uh, the bridge of the ship, Scott, uh, it was important to Scott. He sought to create a tactile experience for the actors, and they, the design, the production design team, built installed fifteen hundred circuits so that every switch and dial worked, worked. For, for the cast and crew 
to play around with. <laughs> and Fassbender even goes, it's crazy. He goes, I felt like I was on an actual functional spaceship. The corridors, the bridge, the sleep chamber, all these production design elements were so detailed and sophisticated. And he's like, and it's true. It's rare with fantasy films or high concept action films. There's a lot of green screen. And he's had his experience with green screen. We use some, but a lot of it there was for us to explore, touch, interact with. He goes, and that's a real rarity for these days. And by the way, you know, I mean, one, going agree. back to the notion that they shot this pretty fast, 74 days, I mean, um, Scott, if nothing else, he's he, he does shoot, shoot in multicam um, a lot, uh, meaning he has like tons of uh, cameras. Uh, shooting, and so when you're able to build out your practicals in that way, where there's no necessary dead space, you can conceivably shoot pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. You know, you just light it. Um, and they, they were in Australia, where they made they got a huge tax incentive, yeah. huge tax incentive. But um, then when you build it out, like I said, you have your lighting grid, and boom, then you can just start knocking the, the scenes out. Yeah, and to expand on what uh, visual effects or special effects supervisor Neil Neil Corbel had said. Number one, for Ridley, he's very meticulous. Okay, we already established that. Loves physical things. So they actually built these big rigs and sets. Two of the rigs were enormous gimbals, one weighing 10 tons, the other weighing 40, constructed to support portions of the lander and the covenant set for action sequences when the ships were sustaining damage. The 10-ton gimbal had the lander cockpit on it, the Covenant ship on the 40-ton gimbal was about 20 meters long by about 6 meters wide, and it all had to shake and shudder. And we talked about how he doesn't really... No shaky scu- cam. No shaky cam. Like, <laughs> He's shaking actually... these actors. Shake and bake. Um, I like it. And I find that, again, it is sort of kind of refreshing. But, like, practical effects age better than, than visual effects. And, like... Uh, Ridley uh, also said in like a, a recent interview, um, someone asked him if had he go back to the 1979 movie with the today's technology, would he like go back and change anything? He was like, no, it's perfect. Yeah. Like because yeah. practical effects age better, and I was like, I completely agree. And they also use practical; they did practical um, creatures for the xenomorph, just so it's like placement, and mm-hmm. then they would do VFX over it. But yeah, so talk about going that. back to they they created practical models for the xenomorph when they were filming so that they can get the placement and blocking of where the monster creature would be in certain scenes and get the timing of the actors or stunt people throughout the filming. But they actually did have like physical models there of the alien so the actors couldn't interact with in real time. Right. Yeah, and we have a couple of pictures of those um, as well. The actual xenomorph. So download those. Like I said, um, just click the link in the description box and you can get those. Um, uh, do you want you do you want to talk about the xenomorphs? I mean, I know you in particular in this entire section you have tons <laughs> of notes, Marissa. So I'll, I'll kind of throw it to you. Yeah, so it's really cool about, and, like, I'm not really one for ugly creatures, but, like, looking at these pictures of Xenomorph, it's kind of fascinating what they did, now knowing that they actually did use practical models throughout. Um, So there were a a few different models. They they updated a bit, or, like, they had a newer kind of version of the Xenomorph. Um, The new Xenomorph... The Neomorph, that's what they call it, was developed from Ridley's idea from the early days of Prometheus. And they had, uh, so Charlie Henley of the VFX moving picture, he he was also involved with the, the overall look of the model. And uh, What they pictures said, am I supposed to be showing right now? Because I, 
don't know what you're talking about. The Xenomorph <laughs> folder. Xenomorph folder. This one, or just the two facehuggers? Yes. So, well, yeah, let's talk about the facehugger. Um, the, there was a practical version of the facehugger cre- creature that they put on the actor, but part of it is also covered over with VFX. Right. So it's a, it's a blend of the two, but the, it's a little bit of an updated version of the facehugger that we saw, obviously, from the first original Alien. So if you're checking out the video aspect, you can see the practical versus the VFX that they covered over it. Pretty neat. That that scene with the facehugger, uh, it's, it's followed by... I mean, and again, this is where I say David's just... Oh, he's such a dick. <laughs> You know, we see him squat down on the ledge and he's throwing rocks. And then we see that he's actually throwing rocks at Orem. He's <laughs> like, wake up. <laughs> wake up. Wake up, idiot. Not like a, a nice tap <laughs> like, on the yeah. shoulder. Wake it's like, up just now. throwing rocks at him. That's, again, Fassbender. To me, he was so genius in this performance. He, was, he could be evil. I loved him as Walter. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a really good scene. Yeah, uh, a lot, and and again that face hugger, um, you know that the face hugger scene that we've come to know and love, uh, I think has morphed too. It it almost seems to have gotten maybe a little bonier, um, you know, when we look at it at Alien and Aliens in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that we've learned about it, that the face hugger can impregnate almost any being that has like a breathable. Orifice, <laughs> like yeah. So it could be a dog, a, ca- a cow, whatever it is. Um, and we saw that I think in Alien Three. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then for the the regular xenomorph, um, they while filming they use the um, they use stump people and the actual stand-in actors. Uh, so uh, like they, I, I believe when you know during filming they would do like two passes really if you think about it. Um, so originally they would have for like the first take they would have the actual actor in the actual practical suit mm-hmm. of the xenomorph to get the timing, get the blocking, and get the lighting of everything and setting setting up the scenes. But sometimes because they're in, in a suit, they are physically restricted in, in movement and mobilization. So sometimes they'd have to go they cover up with VFX. Obviously, most of the shots are practically covered yeah. in VFX. But sometimes, uh, because the actor couldn't physically move as fast as, oh, now the creature's on this side of the room in two split right. seconds, the second time would be the stunt person would actually do the motions of the creature. But So it would be two takes. So the first one is the person in the suit, and the second one is the actual stunt person. Right. Which is neat. Yeah, it's very interesting um, how we created it. I think the other thing interesting to note is H.R. Geiger, or Geiger, um, I don't know... You know the the creator of the alien. You know he's the one that 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 drew the, the he had the concept art that they worked that that Ridley Scott worked on. He's been he's passed away a long time ago. So Ridley Scott is more or less taken over. Taken over you know, and and again it just goes to his his meticulousness and how what he believes he wants things to look like but at the same while you know obviously you set up a you set up a canon as to how this this alien is going to look you can't mess with it too much so i think that scott was able to pay so there's fantastic a, homage there's a couple of uh, unused concepts that we have um 
photos of and, and whatnot that Mercer was able to pull so we can take a look at those as well. Yeah, so um, also, um, you know, this was back from the, like, the Prometheus days, too. Ridley had a bunch of other creatures that he wanted to show to show that there are, like, different versions or, you know, sure. um, different hybrids of this creature because we know that David has <clears> been <throat> cultivating, like, different types of um, creatures, and these are just unused concepts that didn't make the film, but they there are concepts of, like, what they would look like, how big they would be in scale to the actor if they were in the scene. Um, but you can definitely see the, the variations of what the creature could look like instead of the, the iconic xenomorph that we've seen. Right. And, and, you know, apparently, too, there's supposed to be a book coming out called The Art of Alien Covenant. Um, and I think it's coming out later on this summer, which would be fascinating to look through to see more of Ridley's art and other collaborators and what they envision certain things. And then perhaps what were the changes from concept art to mm-hmm. what we finally see uh, on screen. And you so. said it earlier that really likes to, and, and we, there's concept artists that like to storyboard a lot of it. So we do have you know, those pictures that we yeah. just showed that, you know, the, what it would look like yeah. in, with the blocking and color scheme as well. Pretty neat. Yeah, I think so too. And we talked about how great this movie looked. You know, cinematographer Darius Wolski, uh, this guy's been doing this for a long time. You know, and lighting it, you know, he, he they invented lights which were motion controlled. And I don't know if you noticed this, but when they were in David's cave dwelling, um, you know, when an actor walked in, the light came on and when they moved away, it went it sort of like faded off. And originally we were going to have the visual effects team do it. But once we decided to motivate the lights ourselves, the system got better and better. There's only a few scenes like that, but they're very powerful. And that's really interesting, again, of creating something that, you know, I think that's pretty cool. Motion sort of kind of, you walk in, a a soft light can fade up and then fade down. It's very interesting. And, you know, they use it with David uh, a lot. So, you know, in his uh, his dwelling, his cave dwelling. Absolutely. Yeah, and there was a, you know, I feel like we're kind of bleeding into the VFX. There was some uh, motion cap also um, mm-hmm. with the, with the actors in the suits that to get the the timing and the look of the the, the first take would be what they called the looker, um, right? What it would look like in, in the scene. But and there are some you know motion cap in this film. Yeah, yeah. Which is Absolutely. Um, do you want to talk any anything else about the uh, visual effects you want to talk about? Um, I know we've been sort of jumping around here and there, but yeah, but uh, because we know Ridley likes a lot of practical stuff, but for of course for the xenomorph, they had to do a lot of uh, plates and all the scenes that the alien was in because the, even the baby xenomorph creatures right moves incredibly fast, mm-hmm. and uh, so the, there's just a lot of um, they had to do the background plates, the two takes with the actor and the stunt coordinator, and then also covering it up with an actual sure um, act, um, actual creature VFX wise he said yeah. most of if not all the shots have at least VFX in them yeah they well, even even frame uh, a lot of things he even talked about like uh, for example the hall of heads where the number of key um, there, where there are a number of key scenes um, it was a fantastic fantastic uh, set with a number of huge heads but because the stage sp- space and complexity of the building um, and physical elements, it was up to them to extend the uh, heads into the ceiling. Um, 
So they had to essentially make the, the huge heads and something that wouldn't have been possible in the real world. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, they were able to expand upon that as well. Yeah. What I liked about um, we, we saw the mo- the moment with Shaw, like her dead body, that was practical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's neat. And we actually do have a picture of the practical model of the dead Shaw <laughs> in, in the film. So, I mean, like, the detail and the coloring of it, she definitely looks dead. We'll yeah, that. I think so. She doesn't so. look alive. Yeah, she doesn't <laughs> yep. look alive. And it's but that was a practical thing on set. Yeah, and, and, and what's interesting is when you're looking through, when Daniels found those pictures and they were looking through the sketches, I mean, is it safe to say that, she, that David experimented on Shaw using her sort of kind of as are like the evolution of the face hunger hugger because there was one where there was a tube down her throat down her mouth and such without the face hugger apparatus and her chest was open to see like a cadaver how, like a cadaver to see how could a person be incubated through this it was just very it's a very interesting uh it's a very interesting picture um and such so i mean we could talk about um you talk about the music too, Absolutely. which I found. I you knew music was going to be important, especially from the opening scene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, I was actually very. It, it was weird. I was very pleased to hear them go back to the um, Jerry Goldsmith classic score. Jed Kurzel did the score to Alien Covenant, and it's really interesting because. Personally, where I like the score, but then there are aspects I wished it were more orchestral, like because that's the way Jerry Goldsmith worked as being wonderfully orchestral. And there are other composers like Alan Silvestri, mm-hmm. right, who like definitely takes his cues from Jerry Goldsmith. Um, when you listen to various scores, say like Back to the Future and such. And I was hoping maybe a little bit more, but Jed wanted to not only, he wanted us to hear it, but didn't want to necessarily have to rely on it. So he created some electronic and he sort of, he sort of kind of did a hybrid of using uh, orchestral along with electronic uh, stuff. And he also used uh, heartbeats. He used breath uh, breathing, I should say, um, and that added to tense or intensity within within the scene uh, by adding those into his score. I yeah. think, sorry. Well, in terms of that, right, the the hybrid between orchestral and and electronic. I mean, essentially, as we pointed out, it's very much David's movie, so it's kind of it comes his theme of that sense of that's what he brings to the table. He's not human. He's not organic. He's a hybrid. Right. Yeah, and then I feel like Alien, the the original, there's a lot of moments where it's just dead silence True. because, you know, you're in space, there is no silence. True. It's, it's all silence. And then, like, that movie had its moments where, like, the, the score would come in. And I felt like it was very much the same in this. And you had diegetic sounds and synthetic sounds in the score. That's mm-hmm. what Kurzel did. But also you had the, the you know, we had Country Roads Take Me Home song, right. um, like, which I also love. But, like, you also had the diegetic uh, actual recorder in this. So there's, there's a lot of different mix of different types of sounds in this film. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, and it's interesting to listen to the score outside of, you know, without the movie, just, just, just to listen to the score. Um, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating score 
to listen to its evolution too as to how it plays along. But also it's knowing that worth like, listening to. Curlo wasn't the original composer for this yeah. film. Like we, we, Harry Gregson Williams was originally supposed to do it, and unfortunately he had to drop up because of creative differences. So. Shocking. Mm. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Um, so we didn't really talk about Billy Crudup and perhaps his performance. I, I do have a funny Billy Crudup um, story uh, on the set. Of this movie, I know we're going a little bit back and forth, but I should mention it because it, it, it's really funny. He was actually uh, uh, he was chastised, he was uh, berated apparently by Ridley Scott. Got upset with him on set, and what scene was it? It was the face hugger scene, mm-hmm. and apparently he just he couldn't do it without like laughing. So he's listening to Fassbender's dialogue, going, "Come on, it's it's. I assure you, it's completely safe." <laughs> Knowing the knowledge of the alien movies, he just started cracking up every time he'd go to look at it. <laughs> it was like, good God, <laughs> would you like get this done? And I just would have loved to have been on set going, I know I'm going to die. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, I already know what's going to happen. Like, oh, it, it, I would have just loved to have been on set mm-hmm. to see that, to have that happen. Because he said he just, he had a hard time suppressing laughter. Especially after says, no, I mean, trust it's, me. It's a, it's a funny anecdote, but when you're with Ridley Scott, I, yeah. mean, I mean, come on, you have to have some professionalism while filming. I get so. it. It's still funny, though. I would have loved to have yeah. been a fly on the wall just to have seen that happen. Fair enough. All right. Um, well, speak, going along with the uh, Covenant theme, the first trailer of this dropped on uh, Christmas Day. So. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, it's always interesting when, when movies of this scale kind of are able to, um, uh, the, the, the way they do their promotion, right? Um, one of the interesting things about this one was, uh, they used, um, virtual reality, um, and they created a trailer in a first person experience, um, and it was very much directed by Ridley Scott, um, and so forth. And, uh, if anyone out there had a chance to experience that, Please comment because I would love to to know f- from you firsthand what that was like. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like I want to know how I'm gonna die by these xenomorphs. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite a scary <laughs> feeling. Yeah, well, you know what? Thanks to virtual reality, you'll have a chance. <laughs> you know, and and I know we, we, we I know we have to uh, wrap soon, but it should be mentioned too. Production budget on this movie was ninety seven million, like just shy of a hundred million. We talked about King Arthur. Which was close to two hundred million dollars. Right. This was. But 97. King Arthur was like full on VFX. And this was understood. Like so. But you know, to me, it's like you would expect the movie of a big franchise kind of movie. Yeah, to have to, a, to to have a much bigger budget. Well, so was it King Arthur? I forget. I, I wasn't there with you guys, and I haven't done my research. But I mean, it's it's franchisable no it was supposed to be (laughs) well it was supposed to be so that's where they put the money so you know yeah so you're looking all in with their advertising and hard drives and such about 150 million give or take which is fascinating to me um you know you have um thus far too regarding it's well regarding what it's made uh as of may 24th it's 45 million uh domestically but catch this, foreign, foreign comprised of 65.7% of box office, $86 million. So worldwide, this movie's made $131 million already. Already. 
So, um, and horror does well. Like the genre of horror, like it it, it's good in the horror sci-fi. It's it, a big following. Yeah, well, I, I think this is to be honest. Like part of it, you know, um, why I don't think it'll do as much as the. I mean, it's too heady. You know, like mm-hmm. it's it's less horror, more heady. Um, and so I think that'll hurt it in the long run. I, again, I, I don't disagree. Again, it's it wasn't as much of a bait and switch as Prometheus was. I mean, at least we got Alien, uh, but I just want to see where we're going. You know, it's Rotten Tomatoes last check was 72%. Is that what we have? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but its cinema score was a B. And I think that really goes to your comment of, you know, I, I believe we just want it to get along. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I feel as if they continue. I Another three movies is a lot to, uh, you know. That's a well, you lot. might have seen what James time. Cameron is doing, and it was like, I got, yeah. all right, all right, James. We love it. So that's um, why we're getting more. Yeah, you got Avatar. I'm going to finish this alien thing out. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, so, yeah, to that point, um, we have five, um, five more aliens. Well, five total. Um, as of now, the screenplay for the third prequel was already written. Um, and, and finish so it's scheduled to begin in 2018 um, which seems like a little bit away but in all reality we'll blink and we'll they'll we'll be, be in a blink of an eye but that means the movie will come out in 2019 right not, I mean that's yeah. no I mean from I that know. from Prometheus that's only within a seven year I, I mean in general I mean most of these franchise movies take two years till the next one comes out so yeah. it's right on par with with all of that sure um and speaking of that, uh, Scott said, uh, if you really want a franchise, I can keep cranking it out for another six. Um, I'm not going to close it down again. No way. Yeah. Good for him. So, any final thoughts before we uh, head on out? Overall, like, I actually enjoyed this film, and I don't really like like sci-fi horror, but, you know, I, the, the, alien, the alien franchise is growing on me. Or more so, like, clinging to my face and really killing me. You know. <laughs> Good one. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've been a fan of the Alien franchise. Uh, I've seen Covenant twice. It's actually the first summer movie that I've gone back for repeat business. And and admittedly, it is a it, it's it is a flawed film. Some of which I brought up here. Yeah, you know, wound under the chin. How did they not tell that that was Walter to begin with, or David, I should say? Um, but everything else in it, from its beauty to the way it was filmed to the way it moves this, the alien story forward. If you're an alien fan, uh, I really did enjoy it. I look forward to when it comes out on Blu-ray to see maybe there are deleted scenes or into you know Ridley Scott's um, commentary. So, you know, g- God bless him. Keep going, Mr. Scott. Um, but let's just try to figure out the engineers uh, in getting to LV-426. There you go. So, thank you guys as always. Um, really appreciate it. Like we said, as always, we can talk about the movie and ad nauseum. Um, but, you know, we're only, we're only so interesting for so long, <laughs> if you will. So, instead, if there's anything we missed, which, again, I'm sure there is, please comment. Let us know. Uh, there's so many different things to talk about, so many different theories. Uh, and that's what we love the comments for. You guys have been absolutely wonderful with the comments. So, thank you guys as always. At the Popcorn Talk, at Movie Anatomy, at D Movie 1701, at Serafini TV for Marissa. Um, until next time, we've got Baywatch, we've got Pirates of the Caribbean, whatever the name of that one is. Um, <laughs> Dead got- Men Tell No Tales. There you go. So, uh, and we've got tons of other movies coming up Spider Man Homecoming and all that stuff. 
Um, so until the next Alien or other stuff, we'll see you next time <laughs> for other Anatomies of Movie. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff, we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.